to deal with like the physical aspect is one thing, but then there's all of these, these little voices in your head that just tell you, no, you can't do this anymore. And then there are the things that you've kind of been subconsciously told by society that, oh, you, you can't be athletic. Oh, you can't continue on and be successful in your life. Or, oh, you know, you have this new handicap placard. If you wanted to challenge yourself, um, the experience is just as meaningful as, as the challenge. I like to be pushed and like the challenges. I'm, I like challenges most of the time. Welcome to Miles for Change. I'm your host, Jen DeSalvo, coaching you through the inspiring stories of people challenging their limits to finish the Chicago Marathon while doing some good. In this episode, we're going to spend a few miles with Dare to Try. One of the parts of training for distance races, especially when you've never done one, all of those naysayers who question everything, your ability, your sanity, but throughout the entire process, when you're training with a team, you have all of these people who have zero belief that you can't do it. The whole crew at Dare to Try, they're there to spill the truth. You can, there is a way, let them show you how. So on your mark, get set, let's go. These miles for change are for Dare to Try. Dare to Try. This organization is super impressive for a ton of reasons. They're shattering a stigma because they've opened doors for those living with a physical disability to become athletes. They've not just created a safe and accepting community, but they've provided a path into adapted sports. We are in our 11th season now, um, which is just wild. Dare to Try launched in January 2011 with the mission to provide opportunities for kids, adults, and injured veterans that have a physical disability or visual impairment. Now the word try, in their name, stands for triathlon. That's a multi-sport event where participants first swim, then they hop on a bike and cycle, and then run. Co-founders Carrie Sirota and Dan Tan, they were already working in the adapted sports world. Melissa, our third co-founder, is a person with a disability. She's an above-the-knee amputee. And the three of us were friends, and we would swim and bike and run and do marathons and triathlons together. The three of them were finding that in the disability sports world, everything was team-oriented. So wheelchair basketball, you needed nine other people in wheelchairs to have a game. And with running or biking or swimming, one person with a disability could go out with their family or their friends or their peers in their own communities and be active. Again, recreationally, just for living a healthy, active life, or they could set their goals on doing a 5K, doing a marathon, qualifying for nationals, or whatever it may be. Just getting out with your family or friends to enjoy a nice day, small part of the big picture. So the organization was created. A big part of what these co-founders do is break the stigma that if you live with a disability, you can't become an endurance athlete. We will find a way. There's Plenty of different adaptations that, um, you know, if you still want to bike, run, swim, or, you know, just work out, there's, there's ways to do it. Those ways, well, there are many. We break it down basically into like three groups. Um, so you have your ambulatory. So the, those that are kind of just running upright or cycling, maybe on an upright bike. These are the athletes who have gone through an illness or an event that resulted in an amputation or others who were born requiring assistance from a man-made device. We have the resource of, of our team prosthetist to, to help them um, 
find specific prosthetics that work for them um, and, and sort of any adaptations needed. Then there are athletes who use a wheelchair. For the bike, uh, they would typically um, use a um, like a hand crank or hand cycle uh, bike. So um, pretty much all the same components as a regular bike, but it's got three wheels and, you know, they're using their their hands to, to, to power that. Um, and then for the run, they would switch from the hand cycle to the a racing wheelchair. And lastly, athletes were visually impaired. I mean, I think the biggest piece of equipment they would use is, uh, well, one, a sighted guide um, to to get them through the swim, bike, and the run. Um, but the biggest thing for the bike is, is a tandem bicycle. So you would have a sighted pilot that is in the front, that is, um, you know, piloting, that is, and then, and then you've got the athlete on the back who we call the engine of, of the bicycle. It doesn't stop once an athlete has an adaptive device. The Dare to Try crew rounds up coaches, volunteers, and other athletes. They all head up to Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin, and they host a camp that is truly life-changing. The person that you started off as in the beginning of that camp is, is going to be completely different when they leave the camp. And um, that's a pretty cool progression to see in such a short amount of time. You know, we, we often see individuals that show up that first day and they're, they're nervous, there are a lot of questions, um, just apprehension. And then on Sunday, they're confident, they're, they're, they're doing their first maybe race, um, they're opening up, they're you know, maybe not as shy as they were on the first day. Um, and that's pretty powerful. This equipment, medical experts, and camp, it all comes at a price. So the financial backing is another part of what Dare to Try helps secure. We know that one of the barriers to participating is is some of the equipment that's involved. It's very specific. It's very expensive. You know, there's not many vendors that you can get, you know, this equipment from. One of the methods that the organization has to fundraise in order to provide all of these services and pieces of equipment to its members is the race to raise. I think it was a natural fit for Dare to try to create the race to raise. That's our our team name, the race to raise team, um, because we're we're reaching out to individuals that are challenging themselves, setting a goal like a marathon or a triathlon, um, and and doing it um, in honor and support of athletes who also want to do similar things and accomplish similar things. Carrie says that they started out with a handful of folks wanting to run the Chicago Marathon in order to raise funds for Dare to Try. Now, this year, the team is up to 60 runners. And as for the monetary funds brought into the organization? In the five or six years that we have been a charity of Bank of America Chicago Marathon, it's it's significantly increased um, over the years, and it's become a line item in our budget that we can truly depend on. She says in that time, each year, the 60 or so runners have served as ambassadors, bringing more awareness to the work they do and attracting more to either get involved or seek guidance into their own journey into adaptive sports. It's just an incredible um, opportunity for our organization to raise the funds that we need so that we can provide our athletes with a racing wheelchair or support them with obtaining a prosthetic running blade. We have quite a few athletes who are blind and visually impaired, and um, we do a lot of the work of training the sighted guides and then pairing them up with guides that will um, put put their own uh, sort of goals aside and train with and race at the pace that their athlete is for for an entire um, marathon or triathlon or whatnot. How does it make you guys feel? 
to be able to do this and to introduce um, a whole community to something that they might have never thought they were able to do before. I mean, I, I feel grateful it's what we get to do. I think we hear the stories all the time of um, how getting active and being a part of this community has changed people's lives and changed their perceptions of themselves and what they could or couldn't do. Since 2011, Dare to Try has helped change the lives of over 1,000 athletes and their families. And because of that, they don't have to go out and find nine friends to play a game of basketball. But because of Dare to Try, these men, women, kids, and veterans, well, they can now easily find nine teammates if they wanted, because there's an entire adaptive sports community that they're all part of. Now it's time to meet two Dare to Try athletes, Samantha. She's been doing this for quite some time now, and Michael, who is brand spanking new to adaptive sports. Michael Panther Mayen was born in what is now South Sudan. For decades, the African country of Sudan was going through very intense civil war. I didn't know what peace meant. Because of that war, there were no medical facilities near where he lived. So when he got sick with spinal tuberculosis, the situation became dire. My dad and I had to journey to the neighboring country called Kenya to look for treatment. Uh, and the journey took us long. Uh, from the time that I made it to that hospital, it has already been two years since I got sick. And by then, you know, the disease has already done a lot of damage to my body. Uh, the, the doctors at that point, uh, we didn't know because nobody had the medical expertise to diagnose me in Sudan. Uh, but when I finally made it to Kenya to the hospital there, um, they found out that it was a uh, tuberculosis of spine, TB of spine, oh. that has affected my spine. And that uh, could easily be treated just with, with antibiotics. Uh, if you're given antibiotics, you will be fine uh, for six months if you take those one. But because of uh, no medical facilities in South Sudan, uh, the condition got worse. By the time he reached care in Kenya, the doctors, well, they were just trying to save his life. So when you and your dad got there, what happened next in Kenya at the medical facilities? Uh, well, um, you know, it was a, quite a journey. You know, I had already been given hope in life at that time. And then I made it to this hospital, this mission hospital. And, you know, I just, I was so excited. You know, this, this is going to be, I'm going to be able to be treated and I'm going to, get up and work and go back to enjoy my life as a young boy. Uh, but, you know, that was not the case. I went through a lot of complication uh, after the spine surgery. And, you know, it took a lot of miracle to, to be able to be alive. And at the time, uh, I started now using the wheelchair. And the doctor said, you know, if I let you go back to South Sudan in the war, you're not going to be nobody. So instead, I'm going to let you go to school. So that mission doctor let me go to school for the first time uh, in 2007. And that really changed my life. And they really did save my life, but I was confirmed in a, in a wheelchair. Where did you go to school at? 
Well, I went to school in Kenya at first and, you know, finished uh, high school there. And then after uh, I, I finished high school, um, that mission doctor was from here, yeah, from the U.S., from Michigan. So he, in, he invited me to come to the U.S. And I came in 2012 to go to school. Mm. So when you when the doctor was like, I'm, you're going to go to school and you're going to stay here. Um, what, what about your family? Like your dad bringing you there? Yeah, my, you know, I had the rest of uh, my family back in the Sudan. Mm-hmm. And the time, you know, I, I, it took me a while to be uh, at the hospital as I was recovering. But then my family, I had little siblings mm-hmm. and my mom were back in Sudan. And so uh, it was really hard for, for both of us to be away from them and just know what was going on in South Sudan, the war that was going on at that time. Uh, we really didn't have a lot of communication with them. So we don't know if they're alive or, or not. They didn't know if uh, I was alive or if my dad, you know, is alive also. So we just kind of uh, in this situation where we're just thinking a lot about them. And I it reached a point where I say, you know, dad, go back home to my family so that, you know, you'll be there for them. And I know that this hospital was taking good care of me. And I know that I say that I think I'm going to survive if you leave me here. So my dad ended up going back to Sudan and I stay uh, at the hospital. That's pretty amazing because you were what, 11 or 12 at that point then? Yes, yes. Oof. Wow. You like turned into an adult that day. as a person with disability who was born in Africa. I experienced a lot of pain, uh, suffering, struggle, uh, because over there, people with disability are viewed as people who have no value or are cost to the society. felt like my life was turned upside down, you know, uh, especially being in Africa. If you, if you have disability, as I say before, you are seen as nobody. And so I felt like, you know, with this young guy, young boy full of life, but all of a sudden my life had been just cut off, you know, and I'm here in a wheelchair, uh, thinking that I don't have any future. I don't have life after this, you know. I'm just going to wait until I die in this wheelchair. And so so it was really uh, difficult at that time, but I had a lot of incredible people. Uh, the mission doctor was really very encouraging to me. His, his wife also, um, they just encouraged me and they say, you know, we see a lot in you. We see potential in you, Michael. So you're going to go to school and you're going to do well, you know? So just hearing those, uh, those words really encouraged me. And so, yeah. And I started to use a wheelchair, uh, in Africa. It's not easy being a person, uh, in a wheelchair because a lot of places are not accessible. So accessibility was a huge challenge to me. 
I was not able to go to many places. I could not, you know, uh, I could not go and play with other kids, you know, because of being in a wheelchair. So those were really challenged, but uh, I took that time to uh, study, you know, because I didn't go to school before then. And I was just so excited to have the opportunity to be able to go to school because this is something that I've been dreaming about. And yeah, I was being, being given this uh, uh, opportunity of a lifetime, you know? So I was really excited about that. just graduated from college, uh, was ready to go to vet school. In 2013, Samantha Scroth was with a friend at a cabin in northwestern Minnesota. And then while I was standing in the front yard of a friend's house getting ready to like take a boat for a sail, a dead tree just fell on me. I had a spinal cord injury and a freak accident. One of those things like you never plan for, no one plans to become disabled. Uh, I definitely never planned to become disabled. Before that, had you ever considered distance? Were you a runner? I was actually supposed to race a marathon. It was going to be my first marathon that summer. I was supposed to do grandma's marathon in Duluth and I was training for it when I was injured. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself in the hospital, like, man, well, obviously I can't do that race. I'm never going to be able to run again. She was down in the therapeutic recreation section of the rehab facility, a place she was able to learn all about the new activities that she would be able to do. And she saw a magazine and on the cover was Tatiana McFadden, who's really well known in the world. Uh, and I saw her in a racing wheelchair. I was like, what is that thing? I need to look into this. The entire thing snowballed from there. Her journey into adaptive sports was her way of proving to herself that she could still run, that she could still race. It really gave me a lot of strength and independence that I don't think I would have gotten had I not got involved with adaptive sport. Now, Sam and Michael use a wheelchair. Others, well, their needs are a little different. And for that, they turn to David Rotter, He's the dare-to-try team prosthetist. Yeah, if you say that 10 times in a row, you can get in trouble. It was cute. I couldn't even say it once when I was talking to Carrie right. and Dan. I was trying to get it out, right. and uh, I'm like, <laughs> prosthetist. Yeah, like, what? Uh, who? <laughs> but I will try it 10 times now that I can uh, get it out right. There you go. So what exactly does that mean? What do you do for the team? Primarily, I work with folks that are missing limbs and fashion prosthetics to allow people to compete uh, in triathlon at all levels, beginner all the way to Paralympic levels. This includes bike adaptations with prosthetics specifically for bikes. He's made adaptations on a bike to allow an athlete to become more efficient and stationary balance appliances like a cup. An above-the-knee amputee can balance themselves um, in the bike and exert power, get out of the saddle um, with their with their one sound limb. And of course, ambulatory or movable running prosthesis. Now you've seen them. They're that J-shaped spring-like device. They're also really light. A, a running prosthesis is usually lighter than an, a walking prosthesis. Mm. Um, so yeah, they're, they're very light and they're designed to be um, kind of efficient springs to propel the individual. How long does it take uh, to make this happen, to get this fitted? to start making it and then to make sure once it is complete that it does fit and it does work. It starts 
um, with a well-fitting device kind of at the time that they're walking out the door with it. And over time, there are changes based on, on need, based on you know body shape changes, based on a maturation of the residual limb itself. Um, someone who's a newer amputee will experience a shape change more dramatically than someone who has been an amputee for 10 or 15 years, you know, where their residual limb has kind of stabilized. The needs and wear and tear can change over that amount of time, but also the type of use can play a role. So for example, a sprinter putting a lot of force and high impact onto the device, well, it might cause it to wear out more quickly than someone who's doing long distance. um, Perhaps it's not quite um, as impactful with every you know, every stride, um, you should get some longer life. But, but then those people are putting many more miles on the blade. And although some adaptive devices are covered by some insurance plans, running prosthetics, they are not. Insurance companies don't cover running prosthetics. Um, they see it as a luxury. Because of that, David says he donates as many of his services as possible to keep costs low. And in return, he gets to see these athletes flourish. It's just amazing. It's an amazing feeling to see, you know, someone grin ear to ear as they accomplish something that they didn't think that they were going to be able to do or, you know, surprise themselves and see how well they do, you know, kind of meet their own goals. How did you decide that you wanted to get into this type of work? Well, um, so I, I... I, I feel very fortunate that I am in the profession that I am. It was, I'm really kind of, I'm built for it and it's built for me. And um, it's just, it's it's amazing to be able to take someone who wants to run and uh, doesn't have the ability to do so and to be able to craft a device that allows them to do that is, is, is just amazing. Back to Michael and Samantha. As you probably guessed, they are these athletes, crushing goals, breaking barriers, and proving that being an athlete while in a wheelchair is very much possible. In early 2022, both of them took part in the Bank of America Shamrock Shuffle wheelchair division. Now, it was a new experience for Michael. You know, this was my first time, so I was really very surprised seeing some other uh, people, um, you know, with disability, with different bikes and, you know, different gloves and the way, the way they were pushing themselves. He told me that he learned a lot on that day and soon after when he went to the spring kickoff event for Dare to Try. Some of the people there were able to advise me on what I need to, to get and even the the racing bike that I had say that it's just for the learners. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think you need like a true racing bike. And so I've been working with the Dead Try uh, and other uh, people who has uh, who knows a lot about racing to help me uh, get a better bike and get fitted with a better bike that I will use for the marathon. Yeah. So what have they been able to help you figure out um, or like what are some little things that you've learned when it comes to the differences with the racing bikes, the equipment that you will need to continue this racing career? Yeah, it was it was just a uh, different. Yeah, it was very some of the things that I never thought of. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, it, I was first with just the glove. First, it's like, hey, you need this glove that you don't even have to to hold the uh the the wheels. You know, the rims to push. Instead, you can just push it down and you can keep the momentum going. 
um, the the bike, you could sit low, you could, uh, you know, lean forward so that, you know, you go a little faster. And so the, the dare to try guys were able to help me get, uh, get fitted with, uh, one of the bikes that they have. And I, I could all already, I could see the different and, and now I'm, I'm trying to get a new bike that I will be using. So, so it's just, it's just, just a whole new training uh, that I'm going to be doing in the next few months. Samantha, on the other hand, she's been doing it for quite some time now. She started with a hand cycle shortly after her accident in 2013. And she told me she's not into racing as much as just doing it to stay healthy. And I can look back on the things that I've been able to do post-injury and go like, wow, I never would have had those experiences had my injury not happened. Sam has become a disability advocate. And she was crowned Miss Wheelchair America the year after her injury. She's now in her final year of a five-year program working to get both her MD and PhD. And earlier, she told us that she had aspirations to go to vet school one day. I recognized during my, my time in the hospital and then even after I got home, just how much I loved the connection you could have with other people and like the importance of the impact just like on a single person uh, without necessarily having that animal medium. So then I kind of transitioned my, my love of health and medicine and science from the four-legged to the two-legged. <laughs> so here I am, uh, year, I guess I'm in coming up at the end of my fifth year in the program. So I've done my two years of preclinical medical education, taken my first set of boards, and then now I'm in my PhD phase, uh, which I will hopefully complete maybe next year. Fingers crossed. Research is always hard to know when it'll happen. But then I'll go back for two more years of med school and then hopefully have both degrees. She still seems to find time to do upwards of 30 to 40 miles per week just to clear her mind and take a break and train for some longer distance races, she told me. And even though she claims it's just for fun, she won the 2022 Bank of America Shamrock Shuffle Wheelchair Division. Yep, winner. Number one. First one through. I'm a lot more athletic disabled than I was able to. Like, I just, it's something I really enjoy. As for Michael, he's going to take on the Bank of America Chicago Marathon this year. And when he talked to me, he told me he was working on first building his strength. I am a little stronger a little bit. Uh, I got the the, the loaner bike from there to try to use it now. So I've been kind of going, you know, in the parking lot and push myself a little bit for an hour. You also have a training partner who's going to be running next to you while you are racing. Um, yes. And tell me a little bit about your, like, what you look forward to about having a partner through this. Yeah, I just, you know, it's good to have somebody that really encourage you and cheer you on, you know. Oh, as I'm doing this now, sometimes like I'm going to give up, you know. But if I have somebody that's like, hey, go, Michael, you could do it. And it's, I'm here alongside you. I'm doing it myself, too. That really motivates now. So that is going to motivate me a lot. So I'm just uh, excited about that. Samantha just hit the nine-year mark from the date of the accident that changed her life. She published a heartfelt blog that she titled, quote, A Letter to My Newly Disabled Self. In it, Sam tells her former self that besides the physical changes she's going to go through, some of the social connections she had will become distant and fade. But she assures past Sam that, quote, You will find your people, and they're so much better than your mind can even imagine. Coming up next. You try to take the most, try to take the best from everything, you know, and, and through that, through those times, I remember him just kind of 
making the most of it himself. And it was super inspiring. A race to raise teammate and his why. I'm Jonathan Porter and I run for my dad and my kids. Jonathan Porter is a dad, a runner, and a lifelong North Sider. He also has amazing restraints since he was super kind when I said that I grew up on the south side of Chicago, but that might also be due to the fact that one of the most important people in his life, his dad, was also from the south side. So my dad, a uh, very integral part of my life, like most kids, I um, he was my baseball coach growing up, and um, he was... He was, he was my dad. Jonathan's dad, DeWitt, or D, his nickname, well, he was a computer guy, a senior network engineer. And he battled through most of his adult life with diabetes. As a kid, I just kind of knew that he had it. We all knew, me and my two sisters, we all knew, and my mom. Um, we all knew that he couldn't eat certain things, that sometimes he might have to have a little sugar. He says his dad's diabetes didn't really have a role in their home. It was just something dad had. And right around... My 18th birthday, kind of everything started to unravel, um, and uh, he it, it took a, it took a turn and started being hospitalized consistently, started being dialysis clinics consistently, and uh, that two year kind of from 18 to 20, um, it, it was bad, and he ended up losing both of his legs, um, double amputee, and uh, that. Throughout all of this, though, he was constantly just um, positive, still being our dad, still being supportive. After a 12-hour-long surgery, Dee came out to the waiting room. That's where his entire family was waiting for him, full of nerves and anticipation over what was to come. And what came out was Dee's sense of humor. Um, the very first thing he said to us when he saw us kids was, you guys can just call me Stubbs now. How he found that strength and that courage and that ability to, okay, I went through something, but I'm going to be here for my kids right now because they're probably scared out of their minds. Um, was something I'll never forget. These spirits were high, and that was a good thing because the road ahead was going to be long and hard. After your dad's surgery, how were things different for your family? Life changed pretty dramatically. Um, he, when... Uh, you know, lost both of his legs. And, and even before that, it was hard for him to move. Mm -hmm. um, he had lost feeling in a few of his toes. And so we kind of knew this was coming. But obviously, when he lost both of his legs, you know, you become, there's a whole nother level of um, just change and dealing and kind of how are we going to make this house is like accessible. Jonathan said his mom reached out for help in their religious community. The response, well, it was immediate. I think about 12 handymen came out from the congregation and built a ramp that's still up there today. After the surgery, he was moved into a rehabilitation center. So you'd come visit from college, not too far away. And what was it like there? In the first floor of this place was just this amazing rehab facility with amazing staff and personnel and doctors helping him with everything. And they were so motivating and so inspiring. And um, they were coaches, you know, they, they would, he would be in his prosthetics and they would, I remember the different walking things he would do. And, um, and in a time where it, things were so sad and so dark and so 
hard to find happiness going to those PT sessions where my dad was learning to walk was such a light in the darkness. You know, it was, it brought me so much hope, so much inspiration. It put a smile on his face. It brought up his spirits every day. Not long after the surgery, a couple of years, Jonathan says, Dee passed away. He was 53 years old. I kind of just decided that I, I need to do something and I need to kind of make him proud for the rest of my, my time here. And I need to make sure that I'm staying healthy um, to make sure diabetes doesn't come into my life and, and ruin my life. Um, and so that became my why for sure. In 2012, Jonathan decided he would run his first half marathon. I need a goal. I need a motivator. I need something to get off my tush. Um, I think I could do a half marathon. I read somewhere that you, if you run for 30 minutes straight, you can run a half marathon. And I was like, well, I can do 30 minutes. So he did. And he finished. And that was 10 years ago. And since then, Jonathan has picked up a half marathon at least once per year. Just do my 30 miles a month, you know, nothing too big and get ready for the half marathon and just run it, you know, just wait, kind of. Wait, 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 wait. You train for a half marathon on 30 miles a month? Uh, for, yeah, for so, so that's, <laughs> exactly. So that's, that's exactly where, and that's how my race would be, right? I would, it would be about 30 miles a month. I would like be really happy with like 10 miles a week or something like that, or even less, not with a coach, not with anything, just doing it on my own. Okay, we're going to pause right there for a second, and I'm going to put a little asterisk next to um, what you just said. Uh, you can do it. You can run a half marathon and only 30 miles per month, apparently. <laughs> no, but yeah. as a coach, I would suggest years coach and use them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you will like the end of this story because it okay, all leads okay. to that. And it will. And that's where Danton, who you heard from earlier, comes into the picture for Jonathan. But before all of that happened, the pandemic did. Those first two months, March, April of 2020, well, Jonathan ran more than usual those first two months. But by October, his motivation was waning. Now, distance running really takes a lot of commitment, especially a time commitment. And oftentimes while training for a marathon, our other responsibilities, we're not devoting as much time to them as we would if we weren't running these insane long miles. And so every once in a while, you come across a story where a husband or wife kicks their runner spouse out of the house just because they are spending way too much time running. But in other instances, there are those spouses that will kick you out of the house if you're not running enough. They know it's good for you. Well, Jonathan's wife, she was one of those people. She just literally pushed me, like pushed me out the door. Just go, go for a run, go. You need it. Your body needs this, your mind needs this, go. And I'll never forget that run. And he kept going, kept training. And fast forward to October 2021, ran his first Chicago marathon. Still no coach, but his wife was along the way with him, not running, but listening. She was the co-pilot in the entire journey, sharing his experiences, his feelings, and his successes. And then came race day. I remember feeling excited. I remember being like, I was in the back. I was in that last corral, just everyone back there. It is so much fun. Frankly, it was pretty disgusting out that day. Nearly 100% humidity. So it was thick and then it would rain and then it was thick and then it would rain. And it was about 75 degrees. It was just not ideal. They also tell you it's like super flat course. It's the flattest course in the world. Uh, 
it's a flat course yes but there are some parts there where you're going over the highway or you're going over a bridge and you go over the bridge a few times where you're going up you're going up a hill mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm just gonna say that and then you have mount roosevelt at the end which is massive okay that which mm-hmm. and never ending as well so the thing about that super flat course though is that your gps will tell you that you've gone like zero feet or maybe six feet of elevation up and down because all of the ups and downs are man-made they're all bridges right but it's like they exist inclines rain wind heat but in jonathan's head on repeat just keep going try to get to the finish line and uh, i just kept telling myself no excuses keep going toward the end of the race he passed a group but they weren't like the rest of the people out there they were not cheering at all they were they were quiet and they were looking they were looking for somebody. And I just thought whoever they're looking for, they care for. They care about that athlete, you know? And I want that. I need that so bad. After the race, Jonathan searched the name on that group shirts, and a coach connected him with Dan Tun. And from there, a relationship with Dare to Try. When you see these folks that have every excuse in the world to not want to maybe even be mobile or um, every excuse in the world to kind of go at life differently, um, they reject that. There's such a direct parallel um, within the endurance sports community and the athletes that we're working with. You know, it's one thing to have the inspiration like I did from my father where he's learning to walk. Um, These athletes have passed that. They're not only learning to walk, but they're competing in triathlons and bike races and 5Ks and half marathons, marathons, and it's incredible. So this summer and into the fall, Jonathan is running to honor his dad, to stay healthy for his kids, and to pass on the gift of sport to athletes with disabilities. It's inspiring. It really is inspiring. And it's it's kind of a perfect connection for me, I think, to keep me going to, in, in training and even on that day in the marathon later this fall. Oh, and one more thing. Finally, after a decade, Jonathan has a coach. Keep chasing those sunrises, new friend. I'll see you on the course in October. That's it for today. We hope you love Dare to Try as much as we did. To find out more, visit www.dare2tri.org. A special thanks to all of our guests. Carrie Sirota and Dan Tun of Dare to Try, David Rotter of David Rotter Prosthetics, athlete Sam Scroff and Michael Panther Mayen, and runner Jonathan Porter. Our producers, Keith Conrad and Tony Lozano, and music composer, Make Mills. We will post links to Sam's blog and Jonathan's fundraising page on our website, milesforchangepodcast.com. And also, Michael Panther Mayen, well, he's doing some amazing work with his own organization. It's called Living with Hope. It's a group that sends wheelchairs to Africa. So keep a watch out for a special Extra Mile episode where we dive deeper into that. Thanks for listening to Miles for Change. I'm Jen DeSalvo. Remember, never limit your challenges. Challenge your limits. 